Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's always this gap between objective experience out there in the world and our own internal subjective experience. And so what we talk about in the book is... This gap is the marketer's playground. This gap is opportunity. What we do is we teach people how to apply neuromarketing with a strong ethical perspective. And and at the same time, um, we want to improve both things because the answer to bad marketing isn't no marketing, right? It's better marketing. It's marketing where you actually think thoroughly about the psychological impact you're listening to Matthew Johnson and Prince Guman on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Psychologist Off the Clock is supported by Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis Continuing Education, you can really transform your clients' lives. You can learn how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And it's really the premier provider of continuing education for clinical professionals. You can earn CEs if you're a psychologist, social worker, counselor, behavior analyst, MFT, physician, nurse, and more. And Praxis has both on-demand courses and live online courses. Right now, you can get Act Immersion or Act in Practice with Steve Hayes, as well as Act One with Matt Boone and Focused Act for Brief Interventions with Kirk Strosall and Patty Robinson. Those are the on-demand courses. And live self-care and radical healing among BIPOC therapists on the front lines, culturally tailored act, fundamentals of DBT, act in behavior analysis, superhero therapy, and more. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you'll get a coupon code for the live courses there. Check us out at offtheclockpsych.com. This is Diana, and I'm here with Jill to talk about the neuroscience of marketing. And we were just chatting that we had to brush off a few cobwebs of psych one terms and memory and encoding for this one, but I found it a great interview. What was your experience with listening to this episode, Jill? Well, first, I I always think it's fun when we have two guests on at once, and and I like kind of hearing the way that they talk back and forth, and and I love Prince says that Matt is the peanut butter to his jelly, so I was like sucked in to you know the relationship between these two right away, and there were several trips down memory lane, Diana, not just the Psych 101, but talking about the Pepsi challenge. And, you know, the differences between Coke and Pepsi. So I just, I thought that this was really engaging 
really interesting, like looking at psychology, but kind of through a different lens. And we are all, I mean, dare I say victims of marketing all the time. And you guys get into the the ethics of that. Um, And I just thought it was really interesting, both as a consumer and as a business person to think through some of these different kinds of concepts. Yeah, I think it's interesting just to see how psychology influences so much of our lives. And once we get a peek behind the psychology of marketing, it gives you more awareness around choices that you want to make. And I thought this conversation between this neuroscientist and a marketer being the perfect match for us to uncover how we're approaching consumerism. Right, to understand it really scientifically and and I, you know, I think it's really interesting to think about the ethics behind these things. And I, I would have been really curious to hear if they had seen the movie, The Social Dilemma, because that really delves into the way the algorithms are, you know, hooking us and marketing to us. And it reminded me of what they were talking about when they talk about um, what marketing is and extracting value. And that when sellers aren't forthcoming about how they're going about this, that it becomes unethical and one-sided. And that's where I think at the end, when they talk about really it's in the hands of the consumers to make the change. Uh, So if you listen all the way to the end, folks, they'll give you some concrete strategies that you can use to hopefully turn the tables a little bit so that you have a little bit more power. And I'll give you a, a clue that it has to do with our addiction to free stuff. So Check out this episode. I hope you find it helpful and look forward to your feedback on it. Today on the show, we have Matt Johnson and Prince Gooman, who are the co-authors of Blindsight. And I'm super excited to share their work with you because I actually uh, am coming at this book with sort of two parts of me. And I imagine our listeners have different parts of themselves that made them want to listen to this episode. So there's one part of me that completely distrust marketing. And I want to learn all the tools and tactics that marketing's using to co-op my brain and my children's brains. And then there's another part of me which wants to know, how do I market better? I have a business, I have a practice, I have a book, we have a podcast. And so I'm hoping that this real marriage of neuroscience and marketing between the two of you will be useful to both of those parts of me. And maybe I can find some happy place in the middle. And I thought we could start with uh, you introducing yourselves, and the tagline on your blog is, a neuroscientist and a marketer walk into a bar. So maybe tell me a little bit about uh, the two of you and and how you met in this this space. Yeah, so the the neuroscientist and a marketer walk into a bar, that is uh, literally true as as a part of our sort of origin story. So uh, Prince and I, we go back actually to undergraduate uh, together, so after we graduated, uh, we didn't see each other for a bit. So we went on very different paths. I went into the academic field. So I went into a, a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. I'm fundamentally driven by this curiosity. So why do we do the things we do uh, that I was in my PhD program? This is when we became uh, sort of a veiled of neuroimaging technology. We could uh, not just talk with people, not just devise experiments to try and reveal behavior, but also directly into the brain itself. So that was my mid-20s, spent my mid-20s in, in labs and libraries. Uh, then, you know, eventually went on and I met back up with my my twin, uh, who, you know, I hadn't spoken to much, quite frankly, since undergraduate. And he'd gone on a totally different path, but one which, you know, found some interesting parallels with, you know, my, my neuroscience perspective. 
So you're the neuro, you're the neuro side of the twin. And yeah. now I want to hear from the marketing side in the neuromarketing yeah. pair. So while Matt was working on his PhD, I decided to enter the job market when there were very few jobs available. And I'm sure you can guess what year this was. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough to, be, uh, to work at startups for the first half of my career as a marketing leader, as a marketing director. And what I did parallel to Matt was quite the opposite at the same time. I read a ton of neuroscience and psychology abstracts, and I was able to um, read something over the weekend and go test it out on Tuesday and Wednesday. So over a decade of doing that, I had found my own niche uh, to become a successful marketer by applying neuroscience and psychology. So, uh, and then of course, uh, I think roughly 12 years passed before our paths ended up in San Francisco and, and we ended up teaching at the same business school and, and we literally walked into a bar and talked about all the stuff we've been working on. And, and in many ways, you know, uh, Matt is the peanut butter to my jelly. He knows uh, neuroscience much deeper and yet he had been looking for what can we do with this? It's all hiding behind, behind academic journals. And here I was on the other side, cherry picking research to apply and that's all I did was I was a tactician of neuroscience. Um, and, and ultimately, that was the origin story for the book. Like, Well, this is something that we deeply felt people need to know. And not in a manipulative way per se, but in a way that marketing affects your brain. And it's, it's profound. And we've sort of converged upon that as two different coins, two different sides of the same coin. And that is how Blindsight came to be. Yes, fantastic. And it's not lost on me that we are marketing your book right now through this podcast. So I'm actually hoping we can, as we go, talk about how we're marketing. And one of the things that uh, that you write about in the book is, is mental models. And I'm just going to quote you, because I loved this this short passage, which is, we don't perhaps can't experience that world as it is. In marketing, this gap represents something else altogether, opportunity. The opportunity to tweak, influence, and fundamentally alter a consumer's innermost experience of reality. What more could a marketer want in their pursuit of persuasion than the ability to alter reality itself in their favor? Can you talk a little bit about how marketing is actually sort of shaping our mental models and maybe even start with what a mental model is and then how marketing capitalizes on that? Yeah, it's, it's a great place to start. So we, we wanted to start off the book with this topic of mental models to really illustrate how deep marketing goes and in ways that we don't typically realize. Uh, and this really cuts to the heart of the human condition, cuts to the heart of perception. Uh, so if you've studied uh, perception long enough, you inevitably come to this conclusion that uh, we don't experience reality directly. We experience our brain's mental model. So the world is this you know, incredibly complex place and we don't take in uh, every single piece of information from the senses. Uh, we take in a bit of information and then our brain, uh, along with several other influences, creates a model of that experience. And we never actually experience reality directly. We experience our brain's mental model. So we go and you know, sit down at a restaurant, you take a bite of chocolate cake. Uh, you're not actually 
merely experiencing the gustatory sensation happening at the level of tongue, which is being relayed to uh, relevant areas of the brain to experience, to interpret that cascade of, of uh, impulses, uh, you're experiencing your brain's mental model of that experience. Uh, and so what this really indicates is there's always this gap. There's always this gap between objective experience out there in the world in our own internal subjective experience. And so what we talk about in the book is this gap is the marketer's playground. This gap is opportunity. Uh, This is one of the reasons why, uh, in principle, uh, elaborate on this, uh, this is one of the reasons why we owe an incredible debt to marketing. I mean, marketing is magic. It does fundamentally create our reality. So you will taste Coca-Cola very differently if you know it's Coca-Cola. And this is why, as a brand, spends over $10 billion a year on advertising is because uh, the actual brand itself influences our perception. And these mental models go extremely deep. So you can look at this from the level of psychology in terms of what people actually report. You can take a, a neuroimaging approach as well. And you can look at sort of the deepest representations we have for raw hedonic pleasure, a region of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. If you're led to believe that you're drinking uh, Coca-Cola uh, instead of just a generic, bubbly, brown, sugary liquid, it's objectively the same exact liquid. And one, you're led to believe it's Coca-Cola. You actually do experience one more reports of pleasure. But you also experience more pleasure at the level of the brain, which is actually representing this raw experience. Uh, so it just really goes to show just how deep this uh, relationship goes and how important this gap is to marketing. I loved the uh, reference to the Coke Pepsi challenge because I'm a child of the 90s. I was a teen in the uh-huh. 90s and I remember that. And I remember that Pepsi really showed up as tasting better, even though people were preferred Coke. So what's happening there, Prince? I mean, how are marketing's cap- marketing capitalizing on this gap? I mean, it, I love the Coke and Pepsi example because it, it illustrates the mental model, but it also talks about uh, our sense of taste being the weakest sense and hence more susceptible to mental modeling. And like Matt said, marketer's playground is in between that objectivity and subjectivity. So when you're drinking Coca-Cola, you're not so much drinking Coca-Cola, you're drinking the color the, the association with happiness that they've spent billions of dollars building over the years. And you're tasting the color, you're tasting the polar bears, you're tasting all of that. That is part of the mental modeling. And perhaps a better example of that is, is wine. Because again, uh, it, it, and for the listeners, I was just talking to Anna about how I am a, a, a wannabe sommelier when I was studying for that, but you see just how deep that goes in the wine world, right? You aren't so much tasting a glass of cab, you're also tasting the environment, you're tasting the story behind that glass of cab, you're tasting the actual physical glass. And and that is, again, a result of marketing. So if I were to serve you a glass in a red solo paper cup, it would inherently affect your enjoyment of it down at the level of the brain and versus uh, serving it to you in a Rydell glass versus serving it to you in a Rydell glass and telling you the story of this bottle of cab called Shannon. And it was made by a winemaker who had made great wine for many people. And he could not get his younger daughter, Shannon, to fall in love with a glass of cab. So on the night of her wedding, he created this cab that he was convinced was going to make her fall in love with cabs. And it did. And that is what you're tasting. Boom. That is the power of uh, marketing, if you may, 
Uh, and that story feeds into that mental model. And Coca-Cola is that scaled up to $10 billion a year in advertising and sinking um, happiness with Coca-Cola. And the other example is Corona and beach, right? Pre-COVID, Corona had associated themselves with the beach. And they did, they did that. Again, we're all 90s kids in this conversation. And we remember when Corona actually launched the initial beach association. And they've done it for so long that the ads over the years evolved from being on the beach to find your beach. And then there's people hiking and no longer on a beach and because they've associated that feeling of a vacation with Corona. Same thing. They're feeding into that mental model and at the same time differentiating, right? So Corona of all the beer, the, the glut of beer brands that there are, Corona is immediately what you think of when offered a beer at a beach. And you're also alluding to this concept of memory and how we encode our memories, which as a psychologist, I'm super interested in. And it was fun to read your chapters on memory because it was a little bit of a trip down memory lane, huh? no pun intended, in terms of my own you know, training in, in cognitive psych. And, uh, and so I'm going to hold up your book cover here. And there's a few things that you are doing, and I caught them <laughs> while I was reading your book. <laughs> that are helping us with our memory of this book cover. And I imagine this was fairly intentional. Everything from the font you chose to the colors you chose to the image you chose were all chosen to help us remember this book cover. So maybe you can use this as an example while also marketing yourself, <laughs> how your book cover um, helps encode in our memory. And then those that are making their Instagram accounts or their own marketing uh, can use these tools themselves in in their own selling of whatever they're selling. Yeah. We'll give you a quick overview of the book, but I think Matt Matt is really eager to tell you all about memory. So we'll do we'll go to that, and then any IG and any other input, I'll, I'll happy to be happy to jump on. So the idea of the book was to add meaning to it, right? There's two flashlights elucidating something that isn't visible. So there's a flashlight on each side representing marketing and neuroscience, and it's an eye because of blindsight and, 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 and the neuro, uh, the, the, uh, the condition of blindsight. And we can get into that if you'd like, but that was the idea. Initially we wanted to have the yellow part be glow in the dark. So it literally breaks the, the baseline of sitting on a bookshelf and it would glow in the dark. Um, but that was, that was it. Just try to pop out from that context and, and really push for a slightly different one. We actually wanted to include a red pen with every copy of the book. So that way, the very last chapter is on subliminal and midliminal primes. And the idea was to reveal at the very end of the chapter, hey, by the way, that red pen that came with the book, I'm curious if you purchased or showed any preference towards red products, because that was sort of seated in there as kind of like a fun hack. We didn't get to go all the way in with that. That was a, that was a conversation with our publisher. And they're like, we don't want to include red pens. It's so weird. But nonetheless, a lot of thought went into the cover. But with the memory piece, Matt, over to you. Yeah, so this is the one uh, section in the book where we actually did dedicate two chapters. And actually, uh, I feel like we could have easily included a, a third chapter just on memory, but then the book would have been, you know, more about memory than it is about, you know, our broad psychological experience. So uh, memory is, a, is an absolute trip. Um, so first, uh, I think we have to point out that, you know, memory isn't just this kind of fun thing we can do. Where we can remember things from previous experiences. We can go on Jeopardy and recall, you know, factoids and this and that, or we can recall childhood memories. Memory is, is core to our identity. Uh, so we wake up every single morning physically as a slightly different 
person, and yet we don't feel like a different person. We feel like we're an enduring, uh, consistent entity moving through time. Uh, and really, when we come to think about it, memory is the glue that really holds us together as an enduring entity. Uh, so memory isn't just this you know, thing we can do. It, it really is us. If we woke up one morning and this happens, there are you know, psychological, neuropsychological cases where this uh, does actually happen. You wake up and, and you don't have any memory at all. And uh, that, that's an incredibly troubling position to be in. And so memory really is crucial to our identity. Uh, so, yeah, we, we dedicated two chapters in it because there's really two, at least two major ways to look at it. One is through the encoding process. So we feel as if when we're having the experience that we have the record button on. Uh, just as we have a record button on, you know, Zoom right now, we feel like this is kind of how memory works, that, you know, we're just taking in this experience, we're recording what is happening, and uh, that, you know, when it comes to recalling a memory, we're just pressing the replay button. Uh, but it turns out neither of these things are true. We're having experience, we're not taking in the full uh, complexity of the experience, and also, when it comes time to, to remembering something, uh, we don't have a, a faithful, accurate, uh, completely infallible uh, version of this to just conjure up into the present moment. Uh, so when it comes to encoding, uh, not all experiences are created equally. And that actually comes back to the, uh, the book. So we did obviously want to, to pop out. That's one way of, of optimizing for memories, obviously, to drive attention. Uh, so you can't, it's easier to, to recall an explicit memory, we'll say, uh, if we're paying attention to it clearly. Uh, but also, if you create a little bit of disfluence, uh, this is actually a way to galvanize the memory. And uh, I can see, you know, Prince, if you hear, if you hear disfluency or, or any sort of friction, that's like, you know, blasphemy for, for marketers, especially user experience. But actually introducing a little bit of disfluency is actually a great way to uh, galvanize the memory process. If you look at the cover, uh, you know, we have our two flashlights pointing in and then it's a white circle. And, you know, it, the gestalt sort of jumps out eventually as this is an eye. It's shaped like an eye and we have, you know, yellow uh, uh, you know, flashlight rays coming in. Uh, but actually, that's a little bit of a disfluent way of doing it. So in all uh, humans, uh, and this is actually just for humans, it's really interesting, uh, the sclera in our eyes, so not the actual eyeball, is always white. And this is a very, very important feature of our, our human sociality. You're able to pick up on where somebody is looking just at first glance because there's such high contrast between uh, where their eyes are and where the whites are. And so if we really wanted the eye to pop out, we would have had the white in the, this is getting sort of into nitty gritty of the book. Now all the listeners have to definitely go check out the book so they know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm looking at it again now and I'm like, wait, the sclera isn't white in this picture? No, it's exactly. not. It's exactly. not. And actually, I will say that little bit of friction, when I got your book in the mail, I had to do this little double take of it because it's both... My brain was like, are these flashlights shining on something or is this an eye? And it was kind of confusing. And I would say that that kind of friction shows up all the time. You know, if we were reading our newsfeed and all of a sudden there's a, there's a news article that's like mindfulness is bad for you, we're, we'll click on it because we want to learn at, learn this contrast to everything else that's saying mindfulness is good for you, right? And so I could see how that friction both captures our attention and then motivates us to do a little bit of a deeper dive. 
And I, I so appreciate that because I'm looking at uh, things in a different way from learning more about how memory is encoded. And also, I think this other part that you that you talk about, and I noticed, Prince, you using this technique because I listened to a um, podcast episode with you. And in the episode, you talked about your TED Talk. And you talked about the how in how memory is better for the, the the peak experience as well as the end experience, this peak end effect. Yeah. And you talked about how in the end of the TED talk, you you made the end like, you know, kind of powerful to but you didn't tell us what you did in the end. So of course, what do I do? I go and Watch search it. up your TED talk. <laughs> after the podcast. And I'm like, oh, no, he used the Zagarnik effect on me right there. He did it. So I'd love to talk about this unfinished business and how marketers use the Zagarnik effect and this unfinished kind of aspect in their marketing to keep us motivated to keep scrolling and clicking. And I think you're being very nice when you say motivated, because I think the word you wanted, the word you probably want to use was hooked or engaged. Yeah, you hooked me, and, basically. Yeah. So, so Matt and I are not um, addiction experts, but in the book, we actually went out of our way to to be honest about social media and how there is a metric that us marketers use that's time on site, that's engagement. And engagement, what is engagement if not addiction 2.0 in many ways? And and the Zignaric effect is part of many design elements that are uh, used often in, in, in social media to keep you scrolling, what Matt and I are calling doom scroll. I'm sure you've probably heard of doom scroll. So uh, let's talk about the Zignaric effect because this is something that everyone listening can immediately put into action. The Zignaric effect is best summarized as a sense of unfinishedness. When you have a sense of unfinishedness, you have trouble disengaging, right? So if I were to immediately stop and go, I'll be right back, you're all like, oh, what's what in the world is happening? What's coming next? What's, you're more engaged if I were to interrupt this and, and, and leave this sentence unfinished. Well, user experience designers have done sort of the opposite of that. When you remove milestones or a sense of finishedness, you keep people engaged. So this is why when you're scrolling through your newsfeed, there isn't a, a stopping point. There will never be a stopping point because it keeps you scrolling. This is the distrust part of marketing that I was talking it about. <laughs> and, and look, and, and, and yeah. so the life hack here is, uh, I mean, here, if Instagram and Facebook wanted to make their products less addictive, they would go, okay, you've scrolled five times. Is this a good time to take a break? You scrolled 10 times. Is it a good time to take a break? Uh, what I do is I just go, hey, Siri, set a timer for four minutes. And I'll indulge in doom scrolling. And then when it goes off, I just put it away because that's my milestone that I've created for myself. So that is Signaric designed into apps, and that is how you can work around it. Um, the, uh, so I guess, you know, you wanted me to give some tactics to, to anyone working on marketing aspects. So this, this goes back a bit to what Matt was talking about. So the one thing I want to say, though, and this is kind of how you started off the conversation, is that on one side, you have this distrust with marketing, right? On the other side, you utilize marketing to do what you do for a living, Right. And there is a third side that you didn't mention, which is all three of us buy stuff. Everyone listening buys stuff. We live in a consumer society. So we as consumers have an intimate relationship with marketing. So Matt and my mission was A, educate the consumer. And that was this labor of love that was blindside. But you can't just address one side of it while we have the other side, the marketing side, the product side that 
is using this stuff without thinking too much about ethics. So what we actually do is we teach people how to apply neuromarketing with a strong ethical perspective. And, and at the same time, um, we want to improve both things because the answer to bad marketing isn't no marketing, right? It's better marketing. It's marketing where you actually think thoroughly about the psychological impact of what your AB tests your, you know, why is the green button leading to more sales? I don't care because I tested against the blue one and it works better. And, and marketers don't know enough about psychology, frankly, to go that far deep. So, yeah, so that, that was one thing that when you initially opened up, I had to outline that mission because as personally as a marketer who's on both sides, I really don't like this distrust. Yeah. And and we're we're trying to address both sides of this this distrust so we can have a harmonious relationship with consumerism because it's not going anywhere. I, I have to say that, so I'm a very new adopter of social media. Just this year, I adopted ah, Instagram. You. 15 years I was off. And I was off for many reasons. One, because I knew it wasn't going to be good for me. <laughs> I will be the addicted 2.0. And two, I saw how much harm it was doing in my practice. And I would have my my colleagues like Debbie would email me what someone said on social media to tell me someone really liked this episode and they'd copy and paste it and send it to me via email. This is how, how, how much I was distanced from it. But when I started, um, Debbie and I launched a book this year and they said, you need to be on social media. And one of the reasons why I wanted to read your book is because I want to do exactly what you're talking about. And I hear your underlying values there. And I'm very interested in values-based living, right? Like, what are the values that drive our behavior? And the underlying values of how do you market in a way that doesn't harm, but also that the consumer is conscious of what you're doing. And it's actually giving giving them what they want. And one of the things that, that I'm interested in is your ideas around that. Like, how do you bring the ethics into marketing? What does that look like? Yeah, thank you for opening that up. I mean, I think one thing that both consumers and marketers need to realize and accept is a definition of marketing. And it's not what's in textbooks and it's not what your heart initially goes towards. The definition of marketing is a trade of value. As sellers, they are providing a product of value. And as buyers, we are providing at least money initially as a form of value. Over time, the classic buyer-seller has evolved, right? So the seller next door to the initial buyer maybe has a bigger selection. So that's another way of providing value without just the exchange. And the buyer three doors, the seller three doors down has nice music and perhaps a glass of water for you to sell the exact same stuff. That is another way of providing additional value, right? And fast forward hundreds of years later in 2021, we have buyers who can provide value beyond the monetary exchange for goods. And you think about that. You think about user-generated content. You think about every time you review your Uber ride or review something on Amazon, you are providing tremendous value without actually exchanging funds. So there is this interconnected trade of value that takes place. So accepting that as a definition gives both the buyer's power and the seller's responsibility. And where we fall apart with that is when the sellers aren't being forthcoming about the ways that they are extracting value from the would-be buyers, right? So to, to clarify, the value is your information that you are giving them. Like when you're writing yep. the review or you're giving them their email address yes. or you're putting in whatever, 
that's the value that they're gaining. It's no longer money anymore. It's the selling of you. <laughs> yes. And that's where, and that's where there are issues, right? And, 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 and there's a sense of fairness in that trade and that relationship. And it becomes unfair and one-sided when one of the parties, the seller, the social media in this particular example, is not being forthcoming of how they're extracting value from you, right? So anytime you see terms and conditions written in might as well be Latin and I need a JD just to understand it, that is 100% an unfair trade of value. So that is one of the principles that Matt and I teach when we coach future neuromarketers that you have to always mind a fair trade of value. Because marketers aren't going to get any worse at persuasion. They're going to get better at persuasion. It's an asymptotic relationship, right? With, with data science thrown into it, marketers are getting more and more persuasive. And one of the things that we work on is, well, why is it that doctors have a Hippocratic Oath and marketers don't? Right. Right? Why is it that marketers can influence mental models and furthermore, your perception of things, and yet we don't take an, an oath? Um, so the trade of value is, is, is foundational as an understanding and for both players, buyers and shoppers to understand their role in it. And, and we didn't write this book to vilify marketers. We wrote this book so that consumers can understand what's happening in their own brain while they're purchasing, but also appreciate some of that when there, when there is a fair trade of value, right? We live in a world that our needs and wants, um, are a lot lower than the amount of options we have to satisfy those needs and wants. For every, you want a pair of running shoe, good luck trying to choose one, right? But ultimately, what brands have created is a belief system and a mental model that actually affects objectively how you perform in those shoes. And there's research that shows that, right? And I think that's where there's that harmony. The fact that they've done multiple bits of research and one of those is this. If I were to give Diana three golf clubs, Costco brand, starter brand, 90s kids remember starter brand, and Nike, and you go hit the ball. And, and, and research has shown that if you believe you're hitting with a Nike golf club, you hit the ball further, right? So that is a performance edge that I would argue is due to marketing. Yes. And to market to me, you'd say, if I gave Diana three pairs, three pairs of yoga pants, and one was Lululemon, right. and one yeah. was Target... She'll do a better yoga pose in those loose. So we got to know our audience here. So knowing this, like marketing is, is they're sort of doing these you know, somewhat sneaky ways of, of capturing our information. And Prince, you talked about being fair trade, like fair trade chocolate. We need fair trade marketing and we need to know what we're getting when. Can you talk a bit um, more, Matt, about sort of this neuroscience of how uh, – how marketing makes brands likable. And when we're talking about brands now, we're not just talking about Coke, we're talking about branding people. I actually work a lot with executives. And I remember yeah. about five years ago, one of the CEOs that I was working with coming in and she told me about how she was going through branding. <laughs> She's like, I'm getting branded. Personal branding. Yeah, I'm getting <laughs> branded. Yeah. And I was, I was a little bit appalled by the whole thing. And then five years later, here I am with my co-host looking through different pictures of uh, coffee cups and watches and clocks and saying, which one fits our, which brand are we? Are we more the, the clock with the little old fashioned things on top? Or no, that one looks like a swatch. That's not us. We're not swatch. So, so not only are we, we're, you know, there's brands out there, but people are getting branded. And I would add teenagers 
are seeing themselves as a brand because a lot of the way they're connecting is through social media. So what's happening there in the neuroscience of branding? And as you use that word, etching brands into our brain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a such a big question. So first, you know, you're, you're definitely on, on, you know, firm ground having a, an adverse reaction to this idea of I'm getting branded. And that's exactly where the term branded come from. It, it came from cattle branding that, you know, you had this initial, you know, trade exchanges between, uh, you know, farmers, people buying cattle, and you had to identify which one was yours, start to build trust, etc. And you literally branded your cattle. But to the bigger question of, of branding, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. So uh, the first thing I would say there is that brands are conventions. Uh, brands are uh, existing as, as a social construction. Uh, the brand is real like money is real. It, it's symbolic for something. Does a logo have uh, intrinsic meaning? No, a logo has symbolic meaning. And that meaning uh, is only accessed if there's a, a social convention. If we have you know, a, a dollar bill and nobody else shares the same meaning I do with that dollar bill, it, it ceases to have any meaning at all. So it's, its meaning really does exist as a, as a social convention. Uh, but that doesn't make it any less real. Uh, you, you referenced uh, some of the neuroscience where you can actually look inside the brain uh, and you can see that the brand is fundamentally a, uh, a relationship that is built in our brain's temporal lobes, which is our sort of our general semantic network. A brain is really the totality of the semantic and emotional associations we've come to understand about that brand. So we're talking about Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, Coca-Cola has spent tens of billions of dollars making this association between Coke and happiness and then a couple, you know, tangential, you know, relationships there, associations with, you know, Christmas and polar bears and all things that sort of coalesce around this idea of happiness. And you can legitimately see the locus of the Coke brand inside our brain's left temporal lobe, where we're representing all of our brain's semantic information. Uh, it is pretty wild. Um, and then to your second point about, you know, really expanding this definition of branding. So what's interesting when we look at branding from the human perspective is we are fundamentally social creatures. Humans are social in their nature. And this goes beyond just, you know, having a drive for community, just having a drive for belonging. But really, it fundamentally shapes how we see the world. There's a very famous quote uh, from uh, cognitive psychology, all cognition is social cognition. This is absolutely true. It really shapes how we see the world. Uh, and so this is the model which we take with us, which we're seeing everything with. Uh, so, you know, people who uh, have ever had like a, you know, old beat up car sort of know this too well. You know, you, you name your car Susie or Lucy or, you know, you kind of if you're having trouble starting up your car in the morning, you sort of talk to her, you know, coax her into, you know, the engine finally revving up. Or, uh, you know, if your computer's acting up, you sort of, you know, talk your computer into, come on, computer, come on. You have, people name their boats. And this is the social lens. We sort of see this is the, you know, we're, we anthropomorphize. Uh, we see non-human objects as having human qualities. And I mentioned that because that's exactly how we see brands. Uh, brands aren't people. Brands are tools of a company. It's the outward-facing uh, skin of a, a company. It's a tool of a company. But nonetheless, we see brands as people. Uh, so we think of Apple, uh, you know, trillion-dollar tech company. We see Apple as being a minimalist brand, and they're smart, and there's, you know, kind of a Steve Jobs, you know, kind of essence in there. Uh, we think about Nike, and Nike is this, like, you know, incredibly ambitious, you know, godlike athletes, you know, kind of, you know, it's sort of, you know, personality. It, we see brands as as being personalities. 
we see brands through the same social lens as we see our fellow humans. Uh, and then when it comes to, to trying to, to harness this, we have the same traits which we come to appreciate uh, in our fellow humans, we also really appreciate in brands. Uh, so that was a, a longish diatribe that spans, you know, cattle all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, personal brands and, and, and talking about sort of social cognition. Uh, but, uh, no, I think this, this goes, you know, really pretty deep that, uh, you know, brands come into our lives, they come out of our lives, we don't really think about it, but uh, they do have a very strong emotional connection with us. And, and just like with people, there's a likability factor, right? So you're al- alluding to sort of liking, you know, Nike, I think of Nike, I think fast, I think sporty, I think. And that if that's something that's of interest to me or a value to me, I'm going to be drawn to that versus the good old walking store shoes. And I think of like comfort, you know, (laughs) so, so I'm I'm curious about likability and how marketing and neuromarketing uh, capitalizes on the likability factor in things. What makes us like things more than other things? Yeah. So one one thing I would say there, and then you can you can hop in, Prince. So first, from the standpoint of the brands, since we do see brands as we see people, the same things we appreciate in people, we appreciate in brands, uh, and these are you know pretty well understood now in social psychology that really we instantly and automatically understand somebody's intentionality. Uh, so we have these amazing, you know, apparatus of sort of understanding somebody else's conscious experience. It's kind of a trip, but we can only ever experience our own consciousness. We assume that other people are conscious and they have internal subjective experiences just like we do. But we can't know for sure. But to bridge that gap, we have social cognition. We have this ability to model another person's conscious experience. And we do this so automatically and so intuitively that we don't even realize there's a process there. And one thing that we access very, very, very early on, we're talking milliseconds of an interaction, is we make assessments about that person's intentions. So are they, you know, a good person? Do they have good intentions for me? Or do I need to kind of watch out for them? Should I be vigilant uh, around them? We might be wrong, uh, but we're going to form that judgment very, very quickly. And it's the same with brands. So above and beyond anything the brand does in terms of trying to endear us to this product or that product or this influence or whatever, fundamentally, we understand the brand's intentionality. Do they have good intentions towards me above and beyond any sort of you know, business transaction that may transpire? Are they invested in my well-being and my happiness? And when we look at really the most popular, most endearing, most, most you know, tried and true brands, they rate very, very, very high in terms of the uh, perceived intentionality. We're talking, you know, the Johnson and Johnson of the world. Historically, I know they're in the news recently for for other reasons, but historically, I mean, Johnson Johnson is, you know, one of the most, you know, amazing, most beloved brands of all time. We're talking about Hershey's, talking about Nike, talking about Disney. Uh, you know, these are, are brands that are, are story brands that people get tattooed on their bodies. Harley Davidson. Uh, these are brands that uh, there is this really, really, really strong connection to that a lot of it comes down to this perceived intentionality. And to go from intentionality to likability, the science there is also very well researched and it comes down to the mere exposure effect. The more you're exposed to something, the more you interact with something, the more likely it is that you will have a preference towards it. So really, If you think about all of the advertising world, it is simply practicing a craft of mere exposure effect. 
And mere exposure effect has a couple cousins, the, uh, the fluency heuristic and the availability heuristic, which as, as easy as it, as it is for me to bring something top of mind, I'm going to like it more. And as easy as something is to become available at the top of my mind, not only do I like it more, but it feels truer. And that's kind of funny, right? And easier it is for me to bring up, it actually feels more probable. And, and, and this is something that not only fuels advertising, but it's our perception of not only what we like, but what our truth is and what is more most probably taking place. And, and I think it's, it's worth bringing this up now because in the last few years, I think we lost a sense of truth. We lost our barometer for what is true because here are the facts and here, are, here is fake news. But you, it's not easy to decipher fake news from the facts. But again, mere exposure effect says that the more you're exposed to it, easier it is to bring to mind. And the more probable you think what this fake news stuff is, and it affects your sense of truth. And that's one of the things that, um, again, it's not so much about marketing as it is about how we, di- how we digest information. And, and it's primarily through the Facebooks of the world. And the Facebooks of the world are not stewards of facts. Rather, they are stewards of content that keeps you going. And their algorithm isn't made to be a true algorithm. It's made to be an algorithm that optimizes for engagement. And what engages is either stuff that you like or you dislike. And that's what gets the comments, the shares, the likes, the forwards, and ultimately a toxic place to be on Facebook. But that's the mere exposure effect working against us and really eroding at our sense of truth. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlen. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. I want to read another um, passage from your book because this is another one that stood out especially for me as a psychologist, behavioral psychologist. You, you write, the longer you study human psychology, the more you inevitably come back to the same conclusion. We humans are pretty dim-witted. We're bad at most things most of the time. And then later on you write, then you turn to communication and it's like a breath of fresh air. When you examine human communication, you can't help but be astounded by just how amazing humans are. So I'd love to talk a little bit about some concepts in the book, like around neurocoupling and uh, the ways in which we are we're communicating through through marketing and and maybe the, some of the positive ways as well that we communicate through marketing. Absolutely, yeah. So first, I'll, I'll give give a hat tip to my my PhD advisor Adele Goldberg. So she uh, was she, she's a linguist, and you know, I studied with her. She's a great, still is fantastic mentor, and she really opened my eyes to this opportunity uh, this 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 perspective on on linguistics because um, really the history of psychology is a history of finding out really just how bad we are at most things i mean behavioral economics basically is a a distillation of human irrationality we're finding out more and more just how we how bad we are and just 
the many, many different ways. We're just opened up to the diversity of ways in which we're bad. And then, you know, you look at communication and it is just truly astounding. You can see this from the standpoint of uh, developmental psychologies. We don't come to the task of, of language learning with any particular linguistic knowledge. But nonetheless, each of us here was able to learn at least one language perfectly fine without even trying. Not even trying, right? So nobody, nobody, when we were, you know, 18 months old, you know, 24 months, we didn't have flashcards, we didn't have Rosetta Stone, we didn't have, uh, you know, listening to foreign languages in our, in our headsets. You know, we learned this just from the ambient linguistic uh, input that we're getting in our, in our early experiences. And from that, we constructed a language. I mean, that's incredible. So, you know, the first thing to mention really is that, you know, human communication is nothing short of a miracle. So you have to hold this incredibly vast compendium of linguistic knowledge in mind. You have to retrieve words and syntactic structures in real time. All the while, you have to articulate with the fine musculature in your throat in a way that, talk about convention, we have conventional ways of, of using language in a way that somebody who has that same conventional understanding of what these sounds actually mean, access the meaning in their heads, which actually allowed me to communicate something about my internal subjective experience into your internal subjective experience. And this whole process takes place completely outside of our awareness. And unless we really pause to, to think about it, uh, we don't really uh, appreciate just how amazing this is. It, it worked so well that we kind of take it for granted. Uh, so really this concept of neurocoupling really helps to unlock this. This is some research that I had the opportunity of, of uh, contributing to when I was a graduate student. And the, the research here really does indicate that fundamentally, Communication is a physical process. Uh, there's a, a set of uh, fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging experiments that we did, uh, which really suggests that if I have an idea in my head and I want to communicate that into your head, it's really my job as the speaker to inculcate that same unique constellation of neural activity that I have in my head when I'm representing this piece of information into your head. And the better I'm able to do this, the better I'm able to, to really recreate my own internal experience at the level of neuronal activity into your head, the better the communication is. Uh, and this is this concept of, of neurocoupling. And so once we sort of grasp that as, as a framework, then we can talk about ways in which we can optimize for neurocoupling. So in, in, the, in the standpoint of, you know, one-on-one -on -one dyadic communication, and you're probably familiar with this in your practice, Diana, that, you know, we have something called uh, interactive alignment. So if we're talking with somebody and then, you know, you kind of do one of these things, you're kind of, you know, just getting a little bit more comfortable, leaning back. Studies have shown that, you know, within the next five to seven minutes, the person you're talking to is going to mirror that as well. They don't realize it, but you tend to just mirror the conversational features of the person you're talking to. This is the work of uh, uh, Simon Gerrard and Martin Pickering uh, at University of Edinburgh have shown that this is really a way of converging onto a shared uh, linguistic medium, which allows for neurocoupling to uh, take place. So in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, type of setting, we naturally do things to try and uh, improve the success of communication. And then we turn to the business world and uh, we can still have neurocoupling as our, as our basic foundation, but things just get much, much more complex. I mean, it's a miracle that, you know, two people can communicate without too much, uh, you know, misunderstanding. Misunderstandings happen. But then you look at the, the business world. It's not one to one. It's one to thousands uh, of, of people across different channels, different communities, uh, you know. And yeah, Prince, you want to you know kind yeah. of that i mean when it comes to one-on-one -on -one communication it the analogy that we both like to use is it's like 
playing a friendly game of tennis where you're actually trying to volley the ball across in the best way possible they can volley back. Imagine trying to do that at scale for a publicly traded company. So when it comes to moving over to the business side of things, it's more like a game of Tetris. Again, we're doing lots of 90s references today. But imagine a Tetris piece coming down and you have to get it to fit just sort of the right way so it connects with this mass of audience that you're going after. I like to illustrate this with two companies in the same field that I would argue one of them does a better job of coupling and speaking and communicating the way it is better received. You look at Verizon and you look at T-Mobile, right? And you can go, maybe not right now, but later on, have a look at Verizon's Twitter or Verizon's Instagram, and then the CEO's Twitter, and then go look at T-Mobile and look at the vocabulary, look at the types of ways that they're communicating. They're using memes to communicate. They're, they're speaking the tongue of the listener all the way down to the level of T-Mobile's CEO. And that was intentional. That wasn't accidental at all. And, and they're consistent throughout all of their social media channels. I want to give you guys a counterexample. I want to give you an example for Microsoft. So when we are recruiting, especially at the scale that some of these Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies are, they are recruiting at the moment the, the younger green talent, which is Gen Z or middle managers or director level um, millennials. And, and a lot of this stuff, like Matt said, we, we do automatically, but I actually have an email sent out from a recruiter from Microsoft to their new green recruits. And I'm going to read this out loud for you guys. Um, and, and I want you to see the attempt at neurally coupling with a different demographic. And it's a failed attempt. And yet you can see what they're trying to do. Okay. So this is a real email. We actually have a screenshot of this in the book. This is a Microsoft HR person speaking to their recruits. Okay. It starts off all pink, all bold, all caps. Hey, Bay intern, heart emoji. Hi, I am Kim, a Microsoft University recruiter. My crew is coming down from our HQ in Seattle to hang with you and the crowd of Bay Area interns at Internapalooza. But more importantly, we're throwing an exclusive after party than that of the event. There will be hella noms, lots of drinks, the best beats, and just like last year, we're breaking out the beer pong table. And again, in all caps, this time orange and bold, hell yes to getting lit on a Monday night. Yeah, so that would go in the trash so instantly if I received anything like that or if I saw my child receive anything like that. And yes, it's so important, the story that you're talking about of marketing to the individual and making sure it matches the individual. You're talking about one business sending it out to the masses. But what really caught my attention was towards the end of the book where you talk, start talking about uh, addiction 3.0. And how this idea around the future of marketing is going to really help with this idea of individualizing to each person through using psychology. And you talk about the future of marketing is actually going to be more about psychology than anything else. And in particular, looking at personality profiles. Many of us that listen to this show have either taken a psych one, have learned about the big five or ocean, and you share a little bit about how that's going to make it so that the marketing we receive is going to feel like it just hits us right in the right spot. Can you talk a little bit about the future marketing, where it's going, or maybe where it already is? Uh, I think it's, it's there for a certain smaller 
but but sharp and early adopter percentage of people. And it's looking at your big five or your ocean analysis. And and this really uh, came to a forefront with with the uh, with with the Trump election and Brexit, where um, and this is the creepy part of marketing. This is a part of marketing that Matt and I are not fans of, right? This is the unfair trade of value where you give quizzes on Facebook that say which Harry Potter character are you, or which Game of Thrones character are you, or 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 which Sex in the City character are you. But what they're really doing is giving you a fake quiz to get access to your data and the data of all of your friends, and then they throw it into a, a, a machine learning algorithm that a, multiple data scientists manage. And through that, they can gleam a pretty accurate portrait of you put inside the big five. And the big five is an evidence-based personality test that sort of has these measures of these five measures of personality. So like your openness, your agreeableness. Conscientiousness, your, your agreeableness. Yeah. And neuroticism. So if someone ranks really high in neuroticism, you can create an ad that speaks to their core in ways that you were not able to do before, right? So think about uh, one of the ads said, uh, the right to bear arms isn't just a right, it's an insurance policy. Vote for Donald Trump, right? And when you actually extrapolate the ocean uh, profile of a person that ranks high in neuroticism, an ad like that will work. It feels way more customized. So to answer your question, where is marketing headed? It's headed towards a hyper-personalized place. And, and, and psychology is part of that. And there's good and bad sides to that, right? Um, we use Zoom, whether we like sitting and staring at a screen instead of sitting in person, the user experience behind Zoom, the user experience behind our iPhones, the user experience behind whatever app you use to chop up this video and this audio, we owe a good amount of debt to cognitive science and the people in the marketing department and the product department that were able to create easier to use products. But the opposite side of that is using psychology for something like this. And in this case, at the moment, technically there wasn't anything illegal that Cambridge did, which is creepy, right? You've got innovation, you've got consumer slowly catching up to innovation and public policies way down here and you can't even see it on the screen right now, right? So I, I think that is part of the reason why there is this distrust. And that is the part where Matt and I want to fix, right? Because ultimately the psychology and neuroscience piece is out of the box. It, it is still at the early adopter stage for companies and it's gonna take a long time for mid-sized companies to take advantage of it, right? But it is coming. So how can we, A, educate the consumer on this side, and B, educate the marketers for the psychological impact of what they're doing? Because, the, because not every marketer, and I would go as far as saying most marketers don't yet do that, don't yet know how to do that, let alone what happens when they do that. But we'll get there eventually. And I think educating both sides and then public policy way down here eventually will catch up is part of the answer as we go towards the future. I think you're doing a great job. You did a great job today of educating Thank both you. sides and, and helping with those two parts of me that I, that I brought up in the beginning, right? And um, learning about the third part as well as a, as a consumer. And you do a great job in your blog, which is actually really fun to read, Thank super science-packed and, and this fun stories and uh, examples. 
And I'm wondering as, as we close up here, you know, what are some of the, the takeaways in terms of um, strategies? Maybe you could just talk about strategies that you use as consumers and as marketers to help with your um, digital well-being, I guess, is, is the term that you used in, in, in the book. Uh, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll start first and then Prince uh, hop in. So, yeah, I would, I would say the first thing is, you know, accept the fact that you are a consumer. We're all consumers. It's a fundamental. Unless you are, you know, uh, you know living in the, the woods, you know, somewhere doing your own thing, uh, you know, we're all consumers. Uh, and, and so we have to accept this fact. Uh, and so once we accept that, you know, I think the goal is really to not avoid consumerism really in any you know, any fast, whether it's digital or whether it's it's physical, but really to embrace it. Uh, and so one of the reasons why we named uh, the blog Pop Neuro is Andy Warhol. It's, we have to Andy Warhol this. We really have to gain an appreciation for brands and marketing. Uh, that doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to, to ethics piece. And, and that's that's super important. That's where I'm going next. Uh, but because consumerism is unavoidable, we should really be marketing connoisseurs. And one of the reasons why Prince and I are so passionate about bridging this trust gap is because when marketing is done right and when they're truly invested in not just the sale, but the actual emotional experience, long-term relationship with consumers, it's magic. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And uh, there's no reason why we can't enjoy it. Uh, so I think, one, we should, we should really aim to be connoisseurs of marketing. Uh, the second thing I would say is, uh, is mindfulness. Uh, so we have this, there's this, you know, general orientation towards, let's say, food, where you're, if you have a mindful orientation towards food, you're really thinking about, you know, where the food comes from, you're being appreciative of the, you know, the circumstances that provided you this opportunity to eat this food, you don't take food for granted, you, you know, you know, enjoy the morsels as and you're being aware of, you know, how the nutrients are being assimilated into your body as much as possible. I think really, that's the attitude that we should take when it comes to especially digital consumption you know i think we you know uh diana you're 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 an exception here because you've been off social media for god bless you for 15 years it's amazing uh but you know most people i think we you know get on instagram whatever uh you know we just scroll through we spend you know half an hour 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 two three four hours on this you know we're not thinking about what this is doing and just in the same way that we can't fundamentally understand how the nutrients are being assimilated to our body how this is affecting our, our health our mental health you know we're not aware of of how all this digital consumption is affecting us either i think that because i wasn't on it for so long and because i entered so intentionally it's like having cake when you've been like on a detox for <laughs> you know, a week, you know, like a sugar detox that I am so aware and, and conscious of how it impacts me. And then also of what I produce, and I'm very intentional around what I produce. And I actually think that that's where also taking some some time off may be helpful for folks take time away, go for a walk without your phone, talk to your kid without your phone, you know, some of those basics of technology free zones can be can be incredibly helpful. And the other component of it as all of us are acceptance and commitment therapy practitioners here is just awareness of our own thoughts and our own minds. So metacognitive awareness and that that's actually something that we can, uh, a skill we can train as well is being aware of your own thoughts. And to, to piggyback off of what both of you said, I think mindfulness and being aware of your own thoughts, I think when it comes to relationship with consumerism, it is best aided when you know what to be mindful of. Right. It is best aided when you actually know 
uh, there's one thing to say mindful consumption. It's another thing to understand what takes to grab attention, what it takes to build memory, what it takes, what is happening at the level of your emotional process, your cognitive process, and all the other subconscious and conscious variables that you're playing with. So to add to what both you and Matt said, knowing and educating yourself with the psychological experiences that are taking place around consumerism will help you amplify all these things. So that's, that's, that's my addition to, to what Matt and, and you just said, Diana, is and, and yes, and I, there happens to be a book called Blindsight written that outlines all those things so you can actually be better and more efficient at, at mindfulness. And the second thing is this, and I, I think about this all the time. It's, you know, people use the term consumer power loosely, but I believe in consumer power. We as consumers have the power. Um, we are 50% of the trade of value. So we have the power to shape this to be a more harmonious relationship. Uh, and it's shocking how often we don't exercise that consumer power, right? In the US alone, there was no organic food until consumers wanted it and they exercise the consumer power. And it isn't simply about wanting it. It is also about paying for it, which brings me, and I, we're talking about digital quite a bit. Digital is a reflection of us. And that might be a nasty truth to really sit with, but sit in that for a second, right? Facebook is not a nonprofit. They have to make money. And us, the billions of people using Facebook don't want to pay for it. So they found a way to survive. It is a reflection of our behavior that's turned into their business model. When we start saying, I don't want to use free products, that's going to change. Maybe it's going to be tough for Facebook to walk away from $150 billion a year in the US alone in ad revenue, but that might incentivize a VC to fund a company that creates a cooler social network that respects your privacy that costs 10 bucks a month. But it's not until you ask for it and it's not until you're ready to pay for it that it will become a reality, right? So here are some of the easy tactics. I'll give you super easy tactics to help with this, okay? What browser do you use, Diana? I use Safari mostly. Use Safari. Okay, sometimes good for you. Sometimes Chrome, yeah. Sometimes Chrome. Depending so on the interview. They, they need, sometimes people interview me and they require Chrome. <laughs> I know, yeah. it sucks. But, but that's, that's a perfect example, right? We use the fastest browser, Chrome. And it's not that much faster than number two. But it is owned by the biggest data company in the world. And we don't think twice. Where we love Chrome, right? So that's one example. Why are we using Chrome? There's plenty of privacy-based browsers that you can use. And I don't know, maybe donate something to Mozilla. And I promise I don't work for Mozilla. Um, but that's a perfect example of a browser. There's other, there are other business models as this privacy conversation is slowly coming up. And the other one is Brave. Brave actually gives you the opportunity to monetize your own data. With Brave, you can opt out to be completely private. Or you can opt in and make cryptocurrency on uh, ads that people show you, right? Because ultimately, think about it. There is no royalty model. People are making billions and billions of dollars based on our data in aggregate, and we don't get a single penny out of it. So Brave's been able to do the privacy piece, but also, hey, let's see if this royalty model works. There are plenty of apps like that, right? We use WhatsApp. Outside of the US, WhatsApp is tremendously popular, way more than even us, how often we use WhatsApp. But WhatsApp is yet another addiction to free. We're addicted to social media. We're addicted to free. So the biggest takeaway is think about what things you are addicted to that are free 
And how can you address that? How can you find alternate products to WhatsApp? And there's Telegram and there's Signal. Um, Matt and I use Signal and we don't use WhatsApp. And, 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 that, and those little things that are chipping away at our addiction of free are going to change the consumer world. And, and, and that's important. And, and, and so biggest takeaway I can say, underlining it one more time, is we are part of this. And, and right now we're choosing free. We're choosing to watch videos that we don't want to pay for on YouTube that people spend tremendous amount of time putting up. Uh, we're choosing to watch free podcasts, but it's not really free. Someone is getting their share at the end of it, and it's not you and I, the consumers. So it's not until you go on a Patreon or whatever other products there are, even for blogs, paid blogs. It's not until you start doing that that we're going to step away from this place that we found ourselves in. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I've learned so much just even in this interview today. It's been fantastic and really opened my mind to a lot of things that I think we need to continue to open our mind and learn and grow in because it's um, ever changing and we need to keep up and like you said, stay in front of it to be actually to be able to change it. So thank you, Prince Guman. Thank you, Matt Johnson. Check out Blindsight, go to Pop Neuro to check out the blog. And if you want to find out what was that thing at the end of the TED Talk that Prince <laughs> shared about, <laughs> if you still have that question in your mind, go watch his TED Talk. It's pretty fun. And uh, many blessings to you. I hope that you continue on this journey in a positive way and aligned with your values and what's important to you in it. Right back at you, Diana. Thank you for having us. And thank you for, you know, doing your part in distributing this stuff that we're so passionate about. But without you playing the role that you're playing, um, the aggregator of knowledge and the, and the spread of knowledge, this would sit in a bookshelf somewhere or in an inventory in Amazon's warehouse. And, and that's not fun. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.